ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hi there. I'm Laura Rossbrow-Tellum, and this is Foreign Policy Playlist. This week, we wanted to share an episode of FP Live about the global energy outlook. FP Deputy News Editor Keith Johnson sat down with Megan O'Sullivan and FP columnist Jason Bordoff to talk about the United States' role in energy leadership. They also looked at Putin's efforts toward dominance in gas and oil, and how OPEC continues to undercut the U.S. as gas and oil prices soar. Take a listen. The main thing that we're dealing with right now is, other than a grave humanitarian crisis, the Russian invasion has critically disrupted supply and demand patterns and fractured long-standing trading relationships across the globe. Energy prices for consumers and businesses alike have skyrocketed, hurting households, industries, entire economies. European nations are rushing to replace energy imports from Russia. The crisis threatens to derail global efforts to tackle the climate, the challenge of reducing global greenhouse emissions quickly enough to avoid catastrophic climate change. As the, high impacts, as the impacts of high prices ripple around the world, all while governments in Europe and elsewhere struggle to power their factories and even heat their homes, what are the alternatives? Can we avoid major economic pain? What happens next? And how do we get out of this mess? To answer all of these questions and more, let me bring in our guests. Megan O'Sullivan is here today. She's the director of the Geopolitics of Energy Project at Harvard University's Kennedy School. She served as deputy national security advisor for Iraq and Afghanistan under President George W. Bush. And she's the author of three books, including the award-winning Windfall, how the new energy abundance upends global politics and strengthens America's power. Jason Bordoff is also with us. Jason is the co-founding dean of the Columbia Climate School and founding director of the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. He previously served as President Barack Obama's climate and energy advisor, and prior to that, held senior policy positions on the White House's National Economic Council and Council on Environmental Quality. Jason and Megan, welcome to FP Live. Thanks for being here. Great to be with you. Thank you. Nice to be with you. The first thing I wanted to do was throw you guys a jump ball question um, because we're living in a time right now of sky high prices kind of across the board. Uh, if you look at crude oil, uh, if you look at gasoline uh, in the U.S. at near record prices, natural gas is expensive in the U.S. and extremely expensive in Europe. Even coal is pricey. And one of the big questions that, that I'm trying to figure out is, 
is this because of the war? Um, is this a supply problem? Is this because of we're coming out of you know two years of COVID and demand has been pent up? Do we have a demand problem? Um, what exactly is the reason that we're in this pickle right now? Yes, to everything you just said. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll, Things are usually more interesting when when Megan speaks more than I do. So Megan, do you want to go first or? Well, I would refute that. But in the interest of um, using our time, and let me just say again, it's a real pleasure to be with you, Keith, and to be with FP, and of course to be with my friend and colleague Jason. We've been doing a lot of really fun work together on on these very issues. And as you mentioned, this is a time where things are kind of unprecedented. And my answer, and I imagine Jason would, would agree, is that we're talking about both demand and supply shocks right now. And on the supply side, there's certainly the disruption that comes from the Russian invasion. And thus far, you know, the disruption is largely due to self-sanctioning, to basically traders and other buyers being a little adverse to, to buying Russian crude. It's led to some complications in the Russian industry, meaning that Russia's production has come down a bit. But right now, the United States and the UK are the only countries that are not buying Russian oil. So the real big kind of disruption on the oil side could come um, when there's the EU embargo on oil, which has been stuck because of a number of political reasons we can talk about. So that certainly has had a major impact. That's maybe the main thing. But there's also the fact that, you know, there are real questions around OPEC and OPEC's ability to bring the amount of oil it says it can bring to market um, and its willingness to try to stay step in and actually supply more in a case of disrupted economies. But at the same time, on the demand side, we have a number of things going on. And, and the first and the most important there is just China. And the fact that China is suffering uh, from some COVID outbreaks that have led to these lockdowns that people know about, and that's led to a dramatic decrease in uh, Chinese energy demand. And of course, that's helped you know, counterbalance the fact that there are some supply disruptions. So there's a lot of push and pull in the market. I didn't even mention the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, but as, as the, the main point is, there's a lot at work here. Russia is a huge part of it, but certainly not the only part. Yeah, let me just, I know we have short time, but let me just quickly add one thing to what Megan said, all of which I agree with, which to your question, this is the energy crisis we're seeing today, which I fear is going to get worse, not better, is driven in very significant part by Russia's horrific invasion of Ukraine, but not entirely. We should not forget that Europe was in an energy crisis last winter, even before Russia invaded Ukraine. Now, part of that was reduced Russian gas flows to Europe, but there was already a broader risk, which Megan and I have written about. And I think this matters not only economically and geopolitically, but matters a lot for whether we can sustain political support for stronger climate action we so desperately need. If we act from a supply and investment side, like we're on track for our climate goals, but we're not actually on track for our climate goals, the consequences, market crunches and price spikes or an opportunity for maybe state-owned enterprises that are less susceptible to some of those social pressures and climate concerns to grow their production much faster, which are the plans that Saudi Aramco has and Adnoc has in the UAE right now. So there was already concern in the market about potential underinvestment with the efforts to increase climate ambition over the last decade. The problem is oil use was going up and gas use was going up, and we were facing all these supply, uh, supply chain problems coming out of the pandemic, which were certainly uh, affecting energy system too. You're listening to Foreign Policy Playlist. We'll be right back. Hey, 
My name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman. I think that with country is in flames already. We are headed toward the end of the American project. The ability to think and speak freely is what moves society forward, where I have honest, unfiltered conversations about the most pressing issues of our time. Our world is becoming more polarized. Partisan hatred has infected every sphere of life. You can be canceled for having opinions that depart from the consensus of a few social media. Join me every week on Conversations with Coleman as I challenge convention, question everything, and seek the truth with an open mind. Uh, Megan, first, I wanted to go your way. Um, I mean, you wrote the book Windfall, uh, which is about America's energy dominance. And one of the sort of questions right now is, hey, what happened to America's energy dominance? Uh, if we can't you know, provide all the natural gas that Europe needs to backfill the Russians, um, if we're still dealing with triple digit oil and record high gas prices, is that is the Biden administration putting its you know, foot on the hose, so to speak? Uh, or are there other factors at play? What, where is America's energy dominance in all of this? Sure. Well, um, you're using a phrase that is closely tied to the, the Trump um, approach to energy, but I think you're, you're using it to actually mean just more generally speaking, weren't we supposed to kind of get our, ourselves out of these problems because we have become once again, a real energy superpower at, across multiple fuels. And I think it's a great question. And I would answer this in two ways. First, it tells me Keith that maybe you're like a glass, you know, half empty guy, you know, in the sense of um, when we look at the LNG story, you can say like, okay, the United States isn't able to step in and, and supply Europe entirely if it wants to go off of Russian natural gas. And that's certainly true. But if we think about what the US has been able to do, um, you know, the, the progress that Europe has made to try to move away from Russian gas, but also to manage this period of great uncertainty and very high prices, you know, liquefied natural gas coming from the United States has been absolutely fundamental to you know keeping it together to the extent that it has that there aren't you know that that has been you know a damper on the kind of crisis that we would be seeing so that's yeah I would say that's kind of a, a glass half full and going forward um, American LNG is going to be fundamental to meeting energy security while at the same time not completely forsaking the goal of trying to get to the climate goals that we need to reach though on the oil side I think I think you're quite right and I did write about this in, in Windfall, um, that people were overstating what it meant to be, what it meant to be able to meet your own oil needs, that that doesn't actually free you from all the tumultuousness of global markets as long as you're connected to global markets. And we're as connected to global markets as we ever have been. We're an importer, we're an exporter. Um, we're definitely in a better position because we don't necessarily have to import all that uh, volatility and we're not actually sending a lot of uh, our money to countries that we're, we have uh, political concerns about. But in many ways, we're in the same situation. You know, the fact that OPEC is reluctant to open its taps more is influencing us almost in the same way that it would if we were still importing significant amounts of oil, again, because of this global market thing. So I would say, you know, it's a mixed story there that this crisis is going to be um, managed in part because of U.S. energy, you know, uh, I will say prowess rather than dominance. That's a big part of the answer, but it's not a panacea for us and for anybody else because of the nature of global markets. Jason, did you want to add anything to that? 
I mean, just two things quickly. I agree with everything Megan said. I think first we, I don't know what the word dominance means and never really liked it or independence to be frank, but that we shouldn't forget how significant you, the US shale revolution has been geopolitically, economically and the role it is playing now. Not only is a meaningful amount of US LNG uh, gonna go to Europe, but the emergence of the US as one of the largest LNG exporters in the world has helped to facilitate a shift from pipelines to the water and a more integrated, flexible global natural gas system that says when there is a disruption somewhere, you have the ability to go into a more integrated uh, global market and pull supplies in, in response to the price signals. Prices go up and then you pull the supplies in. The US has been a meaningful uh, part of the shift in the global market, which has helped to increase uh, energy security, diversification and optionality, which is kind of where energy security comes from. Same with oil. I mean, we, U.S. oil production is in, in, going to grow over a million barrels a day probably this year, and then with these prices, another million barrels a day. Those those are big increases and short cycle supply. We shouldn't understate it, even though people say, "Well, shale is not growing, and people won't put put capital into it." The second thing is just to reiterate what Megan said, which is we sh this has to be a moment when we are reminded that. Uh, energy security comes not just from producing more or importing less, but using less in the first place. And the U.S. went from importing two-thirds of its oil 10 or 15 years ago to being a net exporter last year, but consumers still face pain at the pump if something happens halfway around the world in Russia. There was a moment in the early 2000s when conservative national security hawks worked in tandem with left-wing progressive environmental groups to call on Congress to slash oil use because it was both a national security risk and an environmental risk. And then we kind of became complacent because we had energy abundance and the shale revolution and we sort of lost that concern. I think this is a reminder that reducing how much, how oil intensive the economy is in the first place is not only important for climate security, but for energy security too. Well, on that note, uh, you know, speaking of energy and intensiveness in the economy, um, one of the things that's been really interesting to watch uh, over the past two months has been sort of the sea change in how European consuming countries uh, have come to approach their decades-long dependence on Russian oil and gas. Um, you know, even countries like Germany, which spent years and years supporting and advocating the construction of another Russian pipeline, um, seem to have kind of done largely an about-face and vowed to phase out Russian oil, phase out Russian gas. Um, and this is a, another jump-ball question, but, you know, with this adventure in Ukraine, the cutoff of gas supplies to certain countries. Has Putin finally sort of overplayed his hand when it comes to Russia's, you know, energy leverage, especially when it comes to Europe? I think the answer is yes. Uh, this is self-defeating in numerous ways, not just not only horrific in terms of the loss of life and the brutality in Ukraine, but it seems self-defeating for Putin economically and from the standpoint of energy geopolitics and, and myriad other ways. A small caveat, or hopefully, uh, hopefully small, maybe it's big, which is we shouldn't underestimate how short our memories are when it comes to energy crises. And so I think it is very hard, it is very hard today, I think it's fair to say, to imagine Europe ever feeling comfortable again, getting 40% of its natural gas uh, from, from Russia. And so this is going to accelerate a move to develop uh, alternative sources of oil and gas, diversification, connection to the other other sources of supply, and a shift away from oil and gas to renewable uh, energy and other clean energy sources, which doesn't happen overnight, as well as increasing efficiency and, and demand conservation. Um, 
at the same time, you know, Germany's what announced, I think, four LNG import terminals. Those are expensive. Those take a couple of years to play out. That LNG is more expensive than Russian gas. And is it possible to imagine three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, I don't know when, a different leaders in power and uh, there's been maybe compensation provided. A set of first circumstances are different whereby at a time of high energy prices, certain political leaders in Europe say, you know what, like that was a long time ago, but there's really cheap energy right next door. We're going to go back to that. It's hard to see now, but I can certainly see based on history that that might be a possibility in the future. And if I could uh, just jump in, I agree with what Jason said there. And I do think um, just looking even beyond the energy picture, I, it's virtually impossible for me to imagine how President Putin comes out better in this conflict than he was going into it, you know, across a whole range of things, energy, geopolitically, politically, domestically, you name it. Um, he also may discover that, you know, his ability to shift and be an energy superpower feeding Asia, even if the Indians and the Chinese have taken a different approach, is more limited than he thought. I mean, obviously, he's very well aware that currently, while oil can be redirected, um, natural gas takes a lot longer and there isn't the infrastructure to redirect the natural gas going to Europe. There's not even the market for it really at this point, the, the vast quantities of, of that kind of natural gas, but that infrastructure will take a long time to build. But I think in reality, he'll discover that the Chinese are not just gonna open their doors and take as much Russian energy as Russia can offload to it because you know China's concerned about its own energy security and it's had a policy of you know limiting how much one supplier supplies to the Chinese market by kind of 10 to 20% of what they import. And so, you know, the ability or the willingness to become really, really dependent on Russian energy, I think is going to be quite limited in Beijing and, you know, potentially in, in other places as well. Wow. That sounds like a real master stroke then. Um, I wanted to take advantage and uh, remind viewers who may have tuned in a couple minutes late uh, that they can use the Q&A button at the bottom of the Zoom screen if they want to submit their name and their country where they're from, uh, ask us a question. We're talking about the general uh, energy climate out there, uh, the transition to clean energy, uh, the war in Russia, and all of the impacts that it has had. Um, and one question actually that, uh, that I had from the audience that, that Jason had sort of alluded to earlier that I wanted to follow up on. This is actually from Vicky Panosian. Um, you have a lot of countries, especially in the Middle East region that are heavily dependent, um, as is Russia, on producing and exporting oil and gas. Um, and a lot of them have their own green or clean transitions underway to different degrees. But are there any sort of concrete steps that you can take um, in order to incentivize a transition for people whose future livelihoods are dependent upon pumping and selling fossil fuels for the next few decades. How do you square that circle? Yeah, and Megan and I have written recently about how for petrostates, um, there may be feast before famine and the broad sense that the energy transition means petrostate collapse um, is, is more complicated and may actually be pretty far out in the future. Um, first, a reminder that a shift, even achieving net zero emissions by 2050, which we're nowhere close to being on track to do, sadly, uh, even, the, you know, even in that scenario, the US is using 
according to the IEA, about 25 million barrels a day of oil, not zero. So that will have to come from somewhere and probably would come from the places that can produce it most cleanly and at lowest cost. The Gulf states look pretty good in that regard. I think what we've been writing about is how messy and disorderly it is inevitably going to be to get to a much lower uh, carbon world. And the potential for, again, you know, policy to move in fits and starts or investment in supply to get ahead of declines in demand is going to mean more volatility moving forward. It might mean more opportunities for state-owned enterprises to increase before they decrease production and more of a need for tools to smooth volatility. And obviously OPEC is one of those right now. In the long term, it does make sense to think about economic diversification because that's inevitably where we're headed, albeit I worry not on the path we need to stabilize temperature at say 1.5 degrees or targets like that. Um, and there are many attributes that um, that some uh, petrostates have with very significant uh, renewable resources, solar resources, how to think about converting some of that either into fuel like green hydrogen or maybe thinking about what the hydrogen would be used for, like making steel and just building, uh, you know, there's a reason many of the world's steel plants are located in places that are not far from coal because that's what was used before. Maybe now we'll do it where the green uh, hydrogen can be made and maybe you become an industrial producer uh, and exporter. So those are opportunities to start to think about. And some are, but probably not enough. And, and Keith, I'll, I'll just jump in, but you can cut me off if there's other things you want to get to with a limited amount of time. I, you know, as your question, it was, it was sort of implicit in your question that not all petrostates are the same. And this is very true. Um, there, there has been the common conception like this energy transition is going to be terrible for all of these oil producing states. And as Jason mentioned, some are going to come, you know, come out quite well in this. But there is a whole other set of countries, um, countries that have very undiversified economies and countries that have weak institutions. And so that don't have the prospect of managing the transition very well, that the idea of economic diversification, which is absolutely critical, but we also see from history is incredibly difficult. You know, you've had these countries trying to diversify their economies over a long period of time and with very few real success stories. So there's a, there's a group of countries that really, um, you know, are in for a tough ride ahead because of the combination of these things. In terms of what can be done, in addition to, to what Jason talked about, um, I think there's a huge need for multilateral development banks and for governments to get more involved to help de-risk private capital flows into the developing world so that clean energy projects can be built there. Because as Jason pointed out, things like hydrogen and solar and other there, there are countries that have these advantages, but it's been very hard for them to get the, the clean energy finance that they need. Um, so it's very easy if you're looking to get investment for a clean energy project in Europe or North America, it's a lot harder if you're in Africa or Asia or other places. So I think that's one thing that the global economy will have to focus on in order for us to meet this transition. I don't want to belabor the point because I know we're running out of time, but I did want to follow up with another question from the uh, from the public. This one from Douglas Redeker, uh, because it touches on something relatively similar. You know, we Jason was talking about green hydrogen. Uh, we hear a lot about electrical vehicles. Uh, we hear about heat pumps, the new rage in Europe. There's a lot of newer and cleaner technologies that seem designed to replace certain parts uh, of the current energy system, often, you know, for, for motor transportation or heat. Um, and, and Douglas was curious, um, you know, as Dan Jurgen often points out, one of the main 
uses of petroleum products is in petrochemicals. Um, you know, the North Face example, your, your jackets, your fleeces, your, your styrofoam packaging materials. Um, how do you actually move away from something that underpins so many sinews of modern industrial society without having these little pinpoint transportation solutions or whatever? First, I'll just say hi to Doug and good to hear from you and hope you and Heidi are doing well. Um, I don't know if Megan, I, I, you want to want to go first or you want me to? I'm happy to have you respond to Doug and I'll jump in. Um, I, I think I think Doug's raising a really important point, which uh, there's enormous reason to be optimistic about how quickly uh, clean energy is advancing and how dramatic the technological improvements are and the outlook in many respects for we have some hard problems to solve on some of the tools we're going to need um, carbon capture and removal and hydrogen and, and advanced nuclear I do think we're going to need all of these and it's still going to be super hard to get anywhere close to the net zero goals that people have if people had said a decade ago wind costs would fall almost 80%, solar costs more than 90%, battery costs roughly the same. That would have exceeded many people's um, greatest hopes for those technologies. And if you had said at the same time, that is all gonna happen and oil use is gonna go up and gas use is gonna go up and coal use is gonna go up. The problem is that's the reality of energy math. And we have climate math, which is how hard it is to stay within a carbon budget that will be quickly exhausted by 2030. But for all the reasons Doug said, the energy system, the things, you know, total final energy consumption around the world is about 20, 25% electricity. Most, and, and solar and wind create electricity. There's a lot of things that you can't use them for. Not yet until we electrify transport, electrify heat. That is, takes time to turn over the, the fleet. So you, two things can both be true at the same time. Dramatic growth and optimism and huge trillion dollar companies emerging in clean energy. And emissions don't fall that much. And I just think that's the hard reality of the math of decarbonization and how dramatic uh, the scale of this challenge is at the speed with which we have to have a transition. We know from history, energy transitions don't happen quickly. And I, I think for the reasons Doug said, that's, that's the trajectory right now. Dramatic growth in clean energy and emissions don't fall that much. And that's what we have to change. And if I could just uh, jump, you said as a jumping off point to make a, a a complimentary but broader point is I think Doug's question you know just really underscores as Jason said the enormity of the challenge. So when we think about an energy transition, you know we might look back in history and we think about moving from coal to oil or wood to coal or something like that. And so we think about swapping out energy sources one for another, but that's really not what we're talking about. We're talking about remaking the entire global energy system which is the backbone of the global economy. And so, and we're talking about doing it in this like breakneck speed, even though it's not overnight, you know, doing something of this magnitude in a few decades is, is certainly, um, you know, it, it could be an overwhelming challenge and that can be still a euphemism. And, and just to echo what Megan said, I mean, when you talk about energy, when the phrase energy transition gets used, people often have in their head something like a chart that sees these great shifts, wood to coal to oil, et cetera, as a percent of the total. But if you look at the same chart, not as a percent of the total, but total energy use, total metric tons of energy, we've never used less of anything. We're using more wood than we did now in 1850. And that's because the world's getting wealthier and there's a clear relationship between GDP growth and energy use. And that's a good thing. We want Southeast Asia and, and Africa and parts of the world that use very little energy today to have the energy they need for meaningful economic prosperity. 
It just means more energy use. And as the denominator gets bigger, we not only need all the increase in energy use from today forward to come from zero carbon sources, we need to take all of the carbon emitting sources today and either replace them or otherwise capture and store the CO2. Fantastic. Well, listen, you know, guys, we're running out of time because I think we've got about 60 seconds left until we wrap this up. And uh, as always, uh, we never have enough time to get through all of the issues, obviously, when you're trying to tackle uh, the entire global energy landscape and war on uh, the remaking of the modern economy. There's a lot to cover. But uh, Jason Bordoff, Megan O'Sullivan, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, it was great to have you on. Um, and that's it for today. episode of FP Live. Our thanks to Keith Johnson, Megan O'Sullivan, and Jason Bordoff for that discussion. That's all for Foreign Policy Playlist. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, you can email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. This show is produced by Simone Perez, Maria Jimena Aragon, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. I'm Laura Rosprautellum. Thank you so much for listening. Till next week. Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about. You lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>